welcome to the Dangerous Women podcast. My name is Sophie Norris and I'm a co-founder of the Dangerous Women Collective, a cohort of fabulous, talented, dangerous women created with the ambition of bringing women together to help and empower one another however we can. On today's episode, we're chatting with the incredible Nikki J. Owen, literally the most dangerous woman we've ever had on the podcast. Her dramatic past changed legal history in 1978, and now she uses raw honesty to share her story and how she transformed her life. Focusing on mental health, community and transformation, Nikki's work truly makes a difference in people's lives. She takes on the role of leadership, coach, speaker, author and founder. I am very excited to welcome to the Dangerous Women Collective podcast today, perhaps one of the actually most dangerous women we've ever had on the podcast, Nikki Owen. Nikki, thank you for being with us on this rather steamy day. Well, it's perfect, isn't it? Steamy day, hot women, we are here, we're going to bring it. We're going to rock this podcast. I am very excited. So I think I'm just going to dive straight in because Nikki has an incredible story that's led her to the equally incredible career that she's embarked on today with hundreds of thousands of followers and likes and shares on her various social channels which we'll get to later but I think your root story of how you got here today is pretty shocking and absolutely fascinating and Nikki I wonder if I could just sit back and let you tell us your story. Yes okay so when I was 18 I was at the Old Bailey and I was facing a life sentence. I was charged with burning my parents' house down. So I was charged with arson, endangering life and intent to murder my mother. And my barrister, um, Mr. Adezio, uh, told me that if the judge didn't accept the mitigating precedent that we'd put forward, which I'll explain in a moment, that there was a, a likelihood that I would get life. And so this was really the catalyst for everything I've done since. But my problem started when I was in my early teens and I started experiencing real deep depressions, lots of anxiety, panic attacks. I started overeating, not just overeating, but really gorging, drinking lots of alcohol And I was a model at the time and I used to dance and my figure uh, was, I just put on five stone in weight in a very short period of time. I was very self-destructive, so I'd cut off my waist length hair and I'd shaved my head. I'd shave my eyebrows and my eyelashes And I'd been in and out of hospital with stomach pumps and having, you know, stitches where I'd I'd cut my wrists. And my parents couldn't understand what was wrong with what they saw as their really normal, lovely, gentle daughter suddenly appear to go mad. And it got worse and worse over the years. And I wasn't a very nice person. I became very violent and very aggressive. I I imagine for my mum and dad, it was like walking on eggshells. And for my younger brother and sister, life wasn't very pleasant in our home. And then one day, 
It was February in 1978 and I was on my own and I remember staring at the the mirror in my bedroom. My dad had put up a huge big mirror and a bar so I could practice my ballet exercises and around this mirror were all these photos of me winning cups and medals, uh, my modelling photographs and I looked at myself and all I saw was this monster, this vacant, just, there was nothing in my eyes. And I was huge. I was really obese. I didn't look anything like the photographs. And I had no hair. I was bloated. And I had this compulsion to just take off all my clothes and really look at the horror of what I'd done to myself. And it was in that moment that I just thought, I I can't live life like this. I'm going to get into a worse state. I'm really petrified and I've ruined my life. And I searched around the house and I don't know what I was looking for particularly, but I came across a box of matches and I went up to my bedroom and I set fire to the curtains in my bedroom and I lay on the bed. And Can I ask how old were you? I was 17 at that point. And I, I watched the curtains go up in flames really quickly. And then suddenly the fire got really big. And the window glass smashed. And it, it just all took hold. And we had a little puppy. I hadn't even thought of the little puppy we'd got, Emma. She was a beautiful little border collie and she started whining at my bedroom door and I realised that if I didn't do something that she'd burn in the fire and she'd die too and I think it was that that kind of shook me into what what on earth have I done and I grabbed Emma and the I think I can't remember whether it was the ceiling um, from above me came down and then there was a big gap in uh, from my bedroom to the kitchen but the whole house was burning and I rushed uh, downstairs and I it we didn't have mobile phones in that day no. uh, so I managed to get onto a landline and phone 999 and call for a fire brigade. So you'd sort of completely come into the moment I was in complete shock that I'd done such a thing and I couldn't really think but I knew I had to call uh, the the 999 I knew that was important and then I held Emma who was wriggling and really frightened and I just ran outside and watched as the whole house was burning it was really terrifying and I was arrested. I was taken to a police cell where I was interviewed for hours. And they kept saying to me, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And I just didn't know why, why yeah. I did it. I, I could, it didn't make sense. I, in the moment, it did. But then looking back, you know, being interviewed by the police, it didn't. And I was remanded in Holloway Prison. And I was 
then charged with arson. And uh, in the next few months, it was a, a question of receiving psychiatric visits to, uh, that they thought that I might be suffering from a mental illness, mm. maybe schizophrenia. But my case came to trial in June of that same year and they gave me a suspended sentence. And I remember walking out of the Old Bailey thinking, oh, but they they haven't found what's wrong with me because I feel just the same. But instead of going back home, I was taken to a secure mental unit where I was given a really uh, strong tranquilizer that used to make my face stick and I couldn't relax because it made me agitated. And I was finally let home within a week and I did the same thing again when I got home. So they my parents had just rebuilt the house and this time there was no uh, there was no um uh, kind of I wasn't allowed out yeah. in fact I suddenly got very violent and I was so violent they kept me locked up in a strip cell which is solitary confinement in the dark I was put into a dress made out of indestructible material so I couldn't hang myself and I was fed through a hatch in the door by wardens that wouldn't come into the cell. And it was a really bleak time. And it was considered to be uh, that the only place that would take me would be Broadmoor, mm-hmm. which is the hospital for the criminally insane. And my father, he got all these reports, all these psychiatrists that came to see me in Holloway. And they described me, and I quote their words, as a maniacal psychopath, incurably insane, a danger to society with a recommendation that I serve life in Broadmoor. And yet my mum and dad refused to accept that madness just comes out of nowhere. They just didn't give up. And that's just to say, well, this is in the 70s, so that wasn't, that's very forward thinking of your parents I guess in a time when mental illness perhaps wasn't as deeply understood as it is now well amazing advocates I guess they well well, they just didn't accept that madness can come out of the the air yeah and they kept fighting and then one day my dad was walking our dog and he bumped into an old um secretary of his And she asked about me and he said, haven't you heard? And she said, oh, I've got an article in Woman's Own, which is, are your periods driving you mad? I'll put it through the letterbox. And dad said to me, he said, when he read it, he thought, this is it. And he gate crashed the world's leading specialist at the time her surgery in harley street dr dalton he begged her to come and examine me in prison which she agreed to do so and then my mum had always kept loads of uh, dates around incidences and my behavior and my periods and so that there was a diagnosis from dr dalton that i was suffering from severe premenstrual syndrome which is today referred to as PMDD Mm -hmm. and it then became the precedent because never before had PMS been used as a legal precedent and the judge accepted my plea and I walked free. 
Incredible. Incredible. So when when you discovered, so sorry, just to, when you discovered it, there's so many things I want to say and follow up this, but when you, so you, you discovered it was PMDD, and I guess at that point, did you go on some hormone treatments or therapies? Yes. And then how... I mean, there it's very two... hard to imagine you as this yeah. maniacal beast. It's very, because you can't see Nikki like I can and the studio can. She is this radiant woman, and I'm with with piercing blue eyes, a, a smile that cuts your face in half. You would, and you you radiant light. So it's almost it, it must feel like you were two people. I mean, it's well, just, it did. extraordinary. To, it's not like you're talking about yourself almost, even though I know you absolutely are. It's just yeah. very hard to picture. So I'm wondering once you got. On a, on a therapy of some kind, whatever it was, how quickly did you become Nikki well, again? there's a couple of things okay. because you just said it's like I'm two people yeah. and that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I was Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. I felt there was the normal me who is like I am now yeah. uh, and then this real evil aspect of me that had taken over control of me mm -hmm. so that's exactly how it felt Sophie yeah and when uh, Dr Dalton came to see me in prison and they came up with all the dates I had blood tests yeah. everything was analyzed and then she prescribed that I come off all the sedatives all the tranquilizers all the sleeping tablets because she said that was exacerbating oh my, my yeah. issues and I was immediately put on to progesterone and within two to three weeks of starting the combination of those two treatments, my change was quite miraculous. In so fact, overnight almost is what was well quite, three weeks. But, you know, hardly it, any time compared to how well. So how long it had gone on when you're banged up in solitary yes, so confinement every yes, day yes. seems a long time. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is, my dad had the brainwave of calling back the psychiatrist that had described me as a maniacal psychopath and he actually said this transformation is miraculous Incredible. and that miracle was quoted by the judge at my trial wow so it it was very quick but the the problem was when I came out of prison and it was on the 20th of December 1978 so a long long time yeah. ago uh, but it wasn't, even though I knew my hormones were now being regulated mm. and managed and I felt much more normal, I was completely traumatised by the damage and the suffering and the pain I'd inflicted on my family and also myself because I didn't look particularly great at the time. And I remember just after Christmas that year, my dad sat me down and he said, look, Nicola, he said, you've got a choice you've got to make. He said, you can either wallow in your bucket of shit yeah. or he said, you can make a decision to get out that bucket and really sort yourself out mm. and find some meaning from what you've gone through. And that's what I did. And, you know, although it was a huge trauma at the time, and it did take me 10 years to really understand, process and be able to accept myself again, actually like myself. Mm. I couldn't look in the mirror at myself because I was still haunted by my eyes for many, many years afterwards, the vacant eyes. But in the sorting of myself out, I realise now that what I went through has given me this opportunity to create this much better, much wiser version of who I am. And if I could sort myself out, 
could I help other people using yeah. some of the interesting tools and techniques that I used to sort myself out along the way? And that's how I've subsequently created my life's work. It's how it all began. And, and it's really strange, Sophie, because at the time, you know, when I first started my corporate career, mm-hmm. I was bitterly ashamed of my past. So I never told anyone. And people would say to me, oh, what made you get into this line of work? And I'd just say things like, oh, I like people. (laughs) I want to help people. But the truth was, I knew the damage that, you know, our emotions when they're unregulated, that our mental health when stress with hormones playing havoc in our body, I knew firsthand the damage it could have. It can wreck lives. So I think it it took me until I was in my mid-40s, until I finally went public. I don't remember, I was running seminars at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre for business leaders. And, uh, you know, I was asked the question and I was running the seminar. And it was a moment where I thought I can either not be transparent or I can just say, this is why. You could have heard a pin drop. Well, it's quite a story. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, you, you would only listen. So I, I'm really interested in that. But so you were you were exonerated. You came out. Do you have to? Did you your entire life um, until the freedom of the menopause? I suspect have to regulate your hormones, or how did that? So you're always watchful over. Well, I was under Dr. Dalton yeah. for many years. Okay, in, well into so, your twenties, sort of. Uh, yes, yeah. it, and even in my thirties. Oh, okay. And it was always suggested that it would be difficult for me to have children, difficult to conceive because they were trying to keep my progesterone levels high Mm. and I had very low progesterone. So in the early days, I went from taking a synthetic progesterone, which was Dufaston, Mm. and then I was given suppositories and pessaries And then finally, I had to start injecting myself and having implants so that they my my levels were really, really low. Mm. So when it became more balanced, I just got used to giving myself daily injections, but they were intramuscular. They were quite painful. I'd get abscesses because they were oil based, but I was living a normal life. It was a small price to pay. And then as I got into my 30s, I then went on to the the suppositories and there was some absolute miracle that when I got married, I discovered that I was pregnant. I didn't realise. I thought I was just putting on weight and feeling sick. I had no idea but I was Because you don't think it's possible. No. So I, it's it not just, on your list no, of why am, I, this, no. why am I feeling like this? I yeah. mean, I had all the classic yeah. symptoms of being pregnant. And I remember going to see Dr. Dalton. She said, we, she said, you're going to be great in your pregnancy because the placenta holds 40 times the amount of progesterone. Oh, incredible. In contrast to when you haven't got that. So yeah. she said that the danger period is just after you've given birth. That's when you, you are going to be susceptible to um, postnatal yeah. depression. And so we give you some injections of natural progesterone just to make sure that you avoid that. But after giving birth, my hormones seemed fine until I was in my 40s again. And, and suddenly oh, I good. noticed I was going a bit 
crazy again in my thinking. And I went straight to see, unfortunately, Dr. Dalton had passed away, but another gynecologist who knew of me and and Dr. Dalton. And he said, yes, you're in, uh, you know, the menopause. So uh, I had a very early menopause. But the good thing about that, it was an over and done with by the time I was in my 50s. Amazing. So I'm free from all of that hormonal so that's just issues gone. now. Yeah. No more. Yeah. And also what a gift that your baby gave you as well. Like yeah. a decade of hormone balance. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, very bizarre. They're amazing. That whole way our body yeah. responds to having children is good and bad is incredible. Yes. And actually, yeah. Rosie, my daughter is uh, she, I recognised when she got into her teens, I recognised the symptoms straight away. Oh, so she was up and... Yes. Okay, and, very responsive to her periods, I guess. And I, yeah. I saw it because so many young women are just given antidepressants mm. and written off as being emotionally unstable. And I saw in Rosie straight away, oh, she's definitely got PMS and she got it sorted really, really quickly. And there's it, there's more current treatments now. Yes. So uh, it was really good that I could see it in her before it got. It's very interesting mm. that because I'm a woman of a menopausal age at the moment. And I think we've got very good about um, treating menopause with all sorts of therapies and saying to women, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, white knuckle this out anymore. You can give yourself hormone supplements and patches and all the things that you need to get into life. But I think we forget at 15, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, as young women are coming into this, they're going through the same. And you're right. I think it's a sort of almost like have some neurofen and, a, and an anxiety tablet and you'll be okay when actually it needs a far more holistic approach in the same way that you do when you're reaching the end of your menstrual life. You know, it's it, it's, it, it's, it's a it's, funny way at those extremities. We don't. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's difficult in the world of work at the moment because yeah. you've got you know, young women and women going through the menopause as well and women who are going through pregnancy. And there's almost like, is this okay for us to talk about in the workplace or is it another excuse to show the differences in the genders? You know, especially when everything's about, you know, diversity and gender equality. So I think that for many women, it's still... Uh, something that they don't talk about and they don't feel comfortable expressing and yet it's a really real thing it's a bit like if you're a diabetic and you need insulin and nobody would judge you for that they just accept that it's a medical condition if you're suffering from a hormone imbalance then you just need your hormones balanced yes and it's just a, a medical condition that has emotional as well as physical side effects. I think you're absolutely right about the workplace. I wonder still if people, I think there's a lot of talk about menopause in particular at the moment and period health and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, good employers are talking about it, but I still somehow feel like it's lip service. Like it's almost like let's let's put a tick in the menopause box that we, you know, we're happy to talk about it. But actually, when it comes down to it, people don't want to and or or or, or hormone imbalances, whatever you're talking about, it's sort of there's a disconnect between the reality and the theory of it at the moment. And those two things need to come together. I I totally agree. And Mm. one of the biggest factors that positively help any hormonal issue Mm. is stress. You know, stress, when you release stress, 
when you're calm, when your autonomic nervous system is in balance, then you naturally optimize your hormones more effectively. So there's a real link between how stress, which then triggers the release of cortisol and adrenaline from the adrenals, which actually inhibit progesterone and estrogen working. Oh my God. Okay. So it's just one simple so thing. Self-sabotaging as we get more Yes, stress. and when you think that right now in the workplace, four out of five people at work are claimed to be stressed, extreme stress and pressure. So it's an interesting topic. And although I'm not a, an no, expert no, I know you're not, in no, no. hormones, uh, I've just been through it. So obviously I'm just sharing what I've learned, but I am an expert in stress and anxiety. So I have studied the impact that stress has on the body and it has a huge impact on our hormones. I think you've segued us beautifully into your business. Why don't you tell us what you do now and how you help people through the experiences that you've had and and this helping people with stress and anxiety and energy and what you're delivering? Well, I think when you face the prospect of a life sentence, I honestly thought I was never going to come out of prison. Yeah then it's emboldened me with the courage to take risks in terms of experiment with different tools and techniques, blend different tools and techniques. So I've always been fascinated in the whole concept of the power of our unconscious mind. I've been curious about cellular biology and the fact that how we feel affects us at a cellular level. I'm fascinated by energy, not the sort of energy that you can measure from an engineering perspective or a physics perspective, but the sort of energy that you walk into a room and you have a conversation with someone and they manage to suck the will to live from you. And you just think, oh, they've just kind of really deflated me. So I just thought, well, I'm going to bring all of the tools and techniques that made a massive difference to me. Mm-hmm. And I and I actually spent five years testing the efficacy of my methods at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre with business leaders. And it was really strange because... So people, on the Thames, Shakespeare's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yes, yeah. I thought I wanted to go big and I'd never run a lot of these exercises before in my head. They made sense. They ought to have worked. Some And why did you choose Shakespeare's Globe? Um, because it was overlooking the Thames. I love water. It was a quirky venue for business leaders. It was non-corporate. So I wanted to put them into an environment where they'd be more open yep. to something a bit different. And I remember doing a few exercises where I thought, oh, that definitely didn't work. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and yet that was the way I learned. It's really a privilege when you see how people opened up and I had masses of support for people. So I had a wonderful team that really were there because, you know, people were being triggered emotionally, which is vulnerable, isn't it? Yes, Yes. but it was life changing Mm. for many people. And I'm still in contact with them today and they then recommend me. So it was really the start of 
ha- when my career started mm. going up a bit and yep. I became more well known at that time. And I remember one of the, uh, the the experiments, and I use the word experiment very loosely. I wanted a powerful way to demonstrate the impact that how we think about ourselves, and particularly with women, they there's a lot of self-beration that goes on. You know, we put ourselves down or we're perfectionists or we think that we're we're not doing enough being a mum and working. And Unbelievably all, harsh self-critics on ourselves. E- exactly. We? We're overproving Ex- all the time. Exactly. Yes. And the desperate need for validation, the sense of being, you know, imposter syndrome, mm. that, oh, it's not okay to be ourselves because I'm not good enough. These, all of this... Crap. Imposter, I was going to say, imposter syndrome is bullshit, by yes, the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a made-up so, thing. Yeah. So what I wanted was to really illustrate the impact that a person's thoughts have on their physiology and on their energy. So I created the Big Apple Experiment. And this was when I, uh, before I started at The Globe. And I remember that the Daily Mail picked up on it and they said, oh, we're fascinated that talking to apples can make you more beautiful they kind of lost the messaging yeah, yeah, yes. a bit do you know How, what I mean that's not like the daily mail <laughs> and uh, and I thought well it's still controversial yeah. but what you do is you take an apple and an apple contains I am told about 65 percent water right the average adult contains 65% water. These are all averages. And uh, you cut the apple into two halves. You put half into a jar labelled love and then half into a jar labelled stress or fear or whatever your kind of negative emotion Mm -hmm. is, frustration. And then you put a lid on them both. You keep them in the same room but not too close together. And then for two to three weeks, whenever you feel real love, you imagine feeling that love and sending it to the love apple. And then whenever you feel stressed or anxious, you send that to your stress apple. And most people, I'm sure people listening or watching this will think, really? And that's what a lot of reporters thought as well. And then they did it. Yeah, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And yet most people will see a visible difference between the rate of decay of their apples in just two to three weeks. And this shook me because if we can affect an apple, for goodness sake, to that extent just by our focused intentions and our emotions, what impact are we having on our bodies, our emotional well-being, our families, our teams at work? When we go networking, you know, if we're judging the other person in front of us, that person's unconscious mind can feel it. Mm. And we're sapping that person with negative vibes. And uh, you, you can imagine in the business world, and I work with a lot of business leaders, all types of business mm. leaders, and they they just don't believe it. They're really sceptical until they do it. So they, they do the, you make them do the apple experiment. I, I never make people do anything. Sorry, you, suge- <laughs> you don't need to because you're so powerful. But you, you suggest that they do the apple experiment to yeah. see how it works. Sorry, you're going to yeah. make me do it. I'm doing yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just put it out there that they yeah, might want to. And I think people are often quite shaken up because we It is, it we is know... a very powerful visualisation. Well, it is. I, I mean, I yeah. encourage everybody listening to watch the video because it is, 
extraordinary. And I think when you think about, you know, young kids at school and bullying, when you think about, you know, the, the first Apple experiment I did was with my daughter Rosie when she was 13. And so I said, right, I want one apple to represent what you like about yourself and one apple to represent what you don't. And she said, I hate my body. And it was that strong. She had such a distorted perception Mm. of her body. She was beautiful. But because everybody in school was slightly slimmer and she was mixing with really leggy girls, she just thought she'd made, she'd formed an opinion in her mind that she was ugly. And it was her apple that was actually used in the Daily Mail. Can talking to your apples make you beautiful? But the fact is that the way we think about ourselves, and I've just written a blog actually uh, uh, on the whole foundation belief of not being good enough. So many women have this belief that when they walk into a room, they really think that they've got to become more vibrant, more sparkly, more dynamic, or they've got to validate why they're, you know, an achiever. And actually, if we just stopped doing all that and we just showed up as ourselves, we are enough just as we are. And it's just this old programming from early emotional wounds that were formed in our childhood that we form different ways of thinking about ourselves that at the time helped us to cope, but are actually quite sabotaging for us as women now. So how do we carry the love apple around with us? So that we bring, I guess, that positive energy when we're in the moment, wherever we are, where it's important that we need to be present and positive. How do we... Because we don't all... Nobody feels like that all the time, do they? No, and that's what I think gives me a slight cause for concern about these you know oh it's all about positive mindset be positive Mm. be have good vibes it's about really acknowledging our emotions Mm. because the biggest issue that stops people from showing up in, in terms of being really authentic and powerful just as they are is that from the moment we're born we're born in a hypnagogic state we're highly suggestible Mm -hmm. and we are wide open but we need a way to interact with the world so we start to download the behaviors we observe from our parents or our caregivers and so by the time we're six or seven years old the behaviors that we have as adults were formed by the time we were six or seven. And they weren't even our behaviours. They're the behaviours of our parents or caregivers. And many of those are not aligned to the woman or or man we are today. And then the other issue we've got is that instead of expressing how we really feel in moments of emotional pain, we feel it's not safe to express those emotions. So we push that pain down into our subconscious and this creates a split in our consciousness so there's a part of us that's all hidden in us and is always that same age and another part of us that's learned how to be brave in the circumstances Mm. so it could be something as small as you're a little girl you're running along you're six years old you trip 
you fall over and you really hurt your knee and you start crying and your dad or your mum might say to you, come on, you know, big girls don't cry. And you want the validation from your mum or your dad. So you immediately push that emotional pain down. And that's the problem. The majority of people's inability to deal with life in the present moment is nothing to do with what's going on in the present moment. It's to do with what is being triggered and linked to their past that's not yet healed. So all I do in my job is, and it's not a job, it's my purpose in life. Yes. It's why I exist, you know, and I know that now. It's, 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 it's my absolute, it makes my heart sing because I just feel I have a real role to play in mm. the world. And so what I do is I help each individual go back to that very first memory of emotional pain and we go into the memory we speak to the little child we find out what the limiting beliefs were what happened how these programs have played out in the person's life and then when we've got the learnings we help that child to find resolution and the result are life-changing for many people so I don't know if I'm a therapist, a coach. I kind of blend loads yes. of different tools. You're Nikki. <laughs> and I work in the moment, but I'm very sensitively aware of people's energy. I, I can feel energy when somebody's holding on to sadness. I can, I know where, you, you know, I mean, for example, with you, I can feel the, the tightness around the chest area. And I can feel that the, that the, the, the emotion that you probably feel uh, more often than not, negative emotion is frustration and impatience. And so I can pick up things very easily about people. And have you trained yourself to do that? Or do you think that, well, or a I, bit of both? Or you've learned well, how to channel it, every, I guess. I've done lots and lots of work on clearing away the unprocessed emotions that I was holding on to for years. And everyone can do what I do uh, because we all have this incredible awareness and it's just that we need to clear out the blockages mm. and the crap. It's a bit like when you get in your car and it's been a while since you've driven it, there's a thin film of dust on the windscreen and so the whole world looks very grey and it blocks the clarity with which you can see the world. And then you put on the windscreen wash and it's suddenly kind of gives it this sparkle effect it's like you see everything with this pristine clarity and you have superior cognitive function so you can make decisions that operate beneath the surface mm. of who you really are Amazing. and that's that's what I do and I'm not for everybody I'm really like Marmite people have to have a level of psychological bravery to yep, work with okay. me because we do go in and we do open that can of worms because the can of worms is causing the biggest amount of issue for that person. So we go in, we locate the can of worms, metaphorically speaking, yes. we undo the lid and we allow all the worms out. And it can feel intense, it can feel emotional. And yet afterwards, the sense of lightness, of liberation, the fact that oh, I can just be myself. Very cleansing. 
Oh, it, it, well, it's not just cleansing, it's liberating. Yeah, okay. And it gives you a, a sense of joy. Whatever happens to me in my life now, I kind of always know everything works out. It always does. That is I'll true. get through this. Yeah. You know, it might feel a little bit overwhelming right now, but if I take a few deep breaths and I just focus on getting myself back into feeling really grounded, I know things will work out. And so I always have that way of looking at any obstacle or challenge. Everything works out. We can't fight the challenge, the struggle of life. So we may as well just go with the flow and just allow life to take us where it wants to take us and just focus on where we can control, which is Mm. how we feel inside. That's where the gold mine is for anyone. Amazing. Amazing. So I yes, so it's quite interesting. I have just been through a bit of a career change four months ago and uh, I'm doing a new job and or a new role. And definitely there is tightness in my chest and I feel it. And it is coming because I like I like things to move at great pace and great speed. I'm a I'm a I'm a motivator and I'm a doer and I'm you know, I like action. And this, you know, when you're starting everything from a blank sheet of paper, nothing happens at speed. You know, you have to unless you're lucky, but you you know, generally things take time to unfold. So I have just been desperately trying to go with the flow and really channeling that as much as you say and really, but it is very counterintuitive to me. So I I can see that. I can see that. I'm working hard on it, Nikki, you'll be glad to know. But I've seen a few things recently, like I've been just trying to tell myself things moving forward in small increments is okay because you're still moving forward. It doesn't have to be quantum leaps every single time that you're well, making but so, so but that's that so I've I, been sort of but it's been tough yeah yeah so a couple of things that would be really helpful for you because the issue isn't about kind of doing the conscious things that makes sense yeah but it's a bit like driving a car isn't it you can get 100% in your theory and yet it doesn't mean to say you can drive no. the car so One of the things that I've noticed because of that tightness across Mm. your chest, and also I know you're really, really focused because you have foveal vision. And I would imagine that when you've got a task to do, you more than anyone are most likely to get that task done. But at what cost? So your head is is slightly pushing forward before, you know, in front of your body. Mm. So even your, your poor body can't keep up with the speed that you want to go out. The most powerful thing you can do is to do open mouth breath work. And this is when you take deep open mouth breaths. Mm -hmm. uh, And the reason we do it with an open mouth is it's the quickest way to transport vast quantities of oxygen into your bloodstream. And this starts to soften the musculature in your body and it allows emotions to come up. So if you change and release the emotions that you're, the old unprocessed emotions Mm. that you're holding onto, often unconsciously within the body, then everything comes up and open mouth breath work uh, actually does that. Writing that down, looking it up. Amazing. I'll be doing that. Yeah. Yes. So it's, you know, just Google it. I will, uh, I will, I Or will. if you want more information, you can get in touch with me. Yeah. But these are techniques that nowadays we have this 
array of fantastic techniques that help us work with our cellular chemistry, that help us work at an energetic level. Because if you're thinking, if you're beating yourself up, by the way, and you're telling yourself that you're not as good as the other people at the networking event, for example, then what you're doing is this is diminishing your the size of your energetic field or, mm. or should we just call it an aura yeah and what I noticed with the work I was doing at the globe is the minute we start thinking negatively about ourselves we shrink our energy and if you want presence and if you want people to notice you and want to come up and talk to you because they just don't know why you need to have big energy it's this is you know this size really does matter when it comes to See, energy I, yeah, I don't think i've ever had a problem gosh this is turning into a personal session now and i'm not meant to be, no no so I, I wonder uh, yeah. so it's very interesting the energy thing so i've never really had a problem with presence i'm 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 tall i'm large i've got a big voice i know i can give off really good vibes and all that sort of stuff when i want to so but i think that's that's an interesting barrier for women too women with a very large presence in terms of energy I sometimes thought, oh it's a bit too big I need to pull that in because women aren't supposed to do that women are supposed to be softer and nicer and not effing and jeffing and talking to everybody in the room or who well not necessarily so let me just give you yeah. the, the reason I shared the reason I shared the networking mm. example is not for you because you no, have I great presence yes yes uh, <laughs> so one of the things about energy is that when we're really focused on other people, all of our energy flows to the other people. Amazing. But it flows at the expense of ourselves. Mm. So we can sometimes feel exhausted at the yeah. end of a, a you know, networking mm. night. And then if we're all about, well, it's all about me, it's all about me, we then drain the energy from other people. So what it's about is actually having an equal balance between self-awareness and awareness of the person that we're in front of. Now, if the intensity of our energy is on a eight out of 10 mm. and their intensity of their energy is on a four out of 10, they're going to feel completely overwhelmed yeah. and intimidated by your energy or by someone's energy that's stronger. So the, the knack is being able to really learn how to balance and align your own energy to connect with their energy and then just start to build your energy because the minute you have an energetic connection, you can build their energy mm. and they will just feel this lovely sense of feeling nourished and stimulated and uplifted through their time with you. So it's something that I, I think energy, you know, the whole field of quantum mechanics, mm. noetic science, these are exciting fields that we're learning more and more about. So I think one day, who knows when, but they this will all be taught as routine in every business. Yeah, no, about sharing energy, energy channeling. Yes, yeah, no, yes. I, I agree. That's very, so, yeah, it's sort of like a fine tune whenever you're with yeah. it to sort of match like with like. Yes, you have to. And that takes quite a lot of self-awareness yes. of yourself and the people around you, which yes. is really interesting. Yes, yeah. Nikki, it'd be really, really interesting to hear because you've sort of been 
doing this your whole life, either consciously or unconsciously now, um, from dark places and places of great light as well. And you've already talked about this, how much you've learned about yourself and that you want to share that. Is there anything that you can share with the podcast and our other dangerous women? Hints and tips for them to know themselves, channel themselves. Just talk about some of the tips that you've been talking about for people to take away with them. I think one of the most important things for us to learn as women, as people, as individuals, is we have to learn to love and accept ourselves for all our perceived flaws. We have to love those aspects of us. We have to make peace with who we really are. Because if we aren't at peace, if we're not comfortable, if we don't even like the woman we are, if we're constantly telling ourselves we're not enough or we're not bright enough or we need to do better or that wasn't perfect, then we're constantly keeping ourselves small and we're entrapping our mindset stream in a a state of incarceration of ego rather than being able to connect with the truth of who you are. Because when you connect into the depth of you, that's a place that's so pure, so expansive, so revivifying, then that aspect of your connection, life never feels the same again. And I think this is the thing about being authentic. You can't teach being authentic. You have to help people to find the courage to do the work on themselves because you can't blame the economy. You can't blame other people. You can't blame anything that is outside of you because the minute you do that, you disempower yourself and you Mm. become powerless. You have to be prepared to do the deep work, which is within you because when you've done that deep work, when you've started to commit to really sorting yourself out and we've all got stuff and we'll always have stuff you know when I'm 90 years old if I live that long then I'll still be working on my stuff because we're like onions there's layers Mm. and layers but what I've noticed is that the more you release the more of your emotional stuff that you process and resolve the easier relationships become work flows in challenges are easier to navigate and life just feels more joyful lighter and happier so my big advice is to commit to really working on yourself helping yourself loving yourself supporting yourself and that I don't think there's anything else that I would add to that that is my core message because I was going to say because you're worth it, but I'm sounding like a L'Oreal outfit (laughs) now. But because I do think that we're so unique. There's no one on the planet quite like you or you or any one of us. We're so unique and we're amazing. And we're operating at just a fraction of our potential, according to the Institute of Noetic Science who are using science to validate that, to explore and discover the uncharted, expansive mind, awareness, consciousness. And when we start to really embrace who we are, then that's when the magic of real transformation happens in every context of life. 
I've got a follow-up question. Is that okay? So I I wonder, so one of the things about the Dangerous Women Collective is it's very um, intersectional and very intergenerational. So it is not a network of women of one level, one age, one, you know, we've got people across career, just everybody is 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 wonderful is what you know in our in our minds but and so I wonder everything that you've talked about loving yourself and you've just said we should talk to, I mean I wonder if we should start teaching it at school at what do you think it is easier to love yourself as you get older do you think there's a generational aspect to that do you I, I, the reason that we don't love ourselves always stems back to our childhood like always okay so I think that with that level of understanding around emotional woundings. And it, you, even as a parent, you know, we can be really well-meaning. So you, your son or daughter might come home from school and say, mom, mom, I've got nine out of 10 for spelling. And you might say, oh, what was the one that you got wrong? And that sets a pattern for that child that they always need to be perfect to get mum's approval. Mm. And so the more education we have the more of the work we do on ourselves the more awareness we'll have when bringing up our children or our grandchildren and then their children will start to grow up and be the same with their children it it would be amazing to teach this in schools it would this stuff for boys and girls today it needs yes she he's they thems everybody needs to be doing this to be happier in themselves but also as you say if you start young you're on a lifelong journey of knowing yourself and then putting that back out to the world and back to your car analogy you would never drive a car with an engine and work and flashing lights all over that so why do we yeah. why do we do why do we literally haul our carcasses around sometimes when we yeah. could be doing so much more than that yes amazing we are coming toward I'm sad because we're coming towards the end of our podcast and it's been an incredibly enlightening I've been lucky enough to have I think over an hour talking to you I'm not quite sure what the final edit will end up at but I have had an incredible time and Jenna who's sitting in the studio with me as well I know has too so we're we are very lucky but I do have to ask a final question just before we come to the end is and we ask this across all our guests on the on the podcast is it'd be great if um you could share with all the other women and men listening to this a story of either way you felt particularly through a woman's gaze incredible empowerment at work or a moment when you maybe have had to overcome some prejudice or uh, fighting against wrong stereotypes at work that you might be able to share as a moment of inspiration for the listeners so I've experienced both Mm. in the workplace and what I learned is that if I'm looking for examples of prejudice and judgment I'll find it. If I look for examples of people being wonderful and supportive and helpful, I'll find that too. And therefore, the, the, the determining factor on how I experience my workplace is going to be what I choose to place my attention on because mm. everything is there all of the time in different contexts and situations. So the most important piece of advice that I always have is that whenever I find myself looking at someone and going into judgment and criticism mode, I then ask myself this powerful question. What would love say? And that question for you to answer that question. Can you feel the power Mm. of that question? It stimulates your vagus nerve. 
it softens you, it opens your energy, and you start to notice the real human being inside the body that they're inhabiting, metaphorically speaking. What would love say? And I use that question whenever I notice that I'm feeling in judgment or if I'm judging myself. And that, to me, has helped me navigate through uh, many uh, perhaps quite difficult and interesting dynamics where I want to shout and scream. And then I just take a deep breath. And in my mind, I think, what would love say? And immediately, I just feel compassion for that person. So if you're feeling that compassion, you're vibrating at a frequency that only you can only validate aspects that validate compassion Mm. because we're constantly transmitting and receiving information on the frequency of how we feel. So if you're quite judgmental, you're going to experience a lot of judgmental people in your life. So if you want to change that, you have to first change yourself. It's all about positive choices and understanding. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. So, Mickey, if people want to find out more about you, your work as a therapist coach, how, how, do, they, how do they find you? How do people access you? They can just check out my website, which is nikkijowen.com. Brilliant. I am going to add in, she's also on TikTok, Insta, Facebook, all of it. And it's definitely worth checking those out. But that you're in, I know your website is the perfect portal to all of those as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> it has been an absolute joy to have you with us today. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much to Nikki for chatting with us today, hearing her story firsthand and how she not only transformed her life, but the lives of so many others is incredibly inspirational. And it shows what you can do when you feel empowered and confident to make change happen for you and your community. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dangerous Women podcast. To learn more, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn or at DangerousWomenCollective.com.